Today's reading is Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think highly, himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You may be seated. So today we continue our discussion and our study of the transformed family and looking at Romans 12 to uh, help us do that. And by transformed family, what we mean is we think of a household, any one of ours. These are homes filled with people. And uh, if you're attending Delaware Bible Church right now, then the assumption is at least some, most, or all of you in that home are followers of Christ. And as transformed as we ought to be individually, if a house is made up of transformed individuals, then what we're looking at or should look at is a transformed family. And so we're trying to take a text like Romans 12, and while it speaks to Any Christian individual, all of us in the room, it applies to us. It was written to a Christian audience. We're trying to place its applications within the context of the family. When you think of transformation, there are those who, like my wife, enjoy watching certain television shows where you're introduced to a home that doesn't look very good, Uh, sometimes dilapidated, perhaps even just outright abandoned and no longer being lived in. And by the end of the show, it's utterly transformed, inside and out. And if you were to pass by, if you didn't know better, you'd say, my goodness, I didn't realize there was a house there before, or certainly not one that looked like that. There's a lot of us that like those kinds of shows. And, you know, perhaps it's the idea of just that kind of visual, distinct transformation that piques our interest. What's it going to look like by the time they're finished? One of the shows that uh, my wife enjoys to watch, and I enjoy to watch it with her, is called Hometown. And this is Ben and Aaron Napier, who reside in Laurel, Mississippi. This is their, it's their hometown, hence the name of the show. Their objective for several years now is to, by like one home at a time, transform their community of Laurel, Mississippi. And while I know that this is a television show and even the so-called reality ones are often heavily scripted and edited and they they show you what they want you to see, you do get the distinct impression that uh, Ben and Aaron are earnestly trying to revive their community. And it seems as though through their one house at a time approach, that transformation is actually having an impact. Businesses are returning to Laurel, Mississippi. There seems to be a feeling in the community of new life and vibrancy. And it's not just their effort, it's the effort of many who work with them. They're not the only ones that transform the house. There are multiple people, 
different skills, whether that be carpenters or brick masons, uh, the plumbers, whatever the, store, whatever the role is, painters, roofers, it can't be done without each person playing their role, working and serving within their area of giftedness. This has been an errand outside celebrating one of their transformed homes behind them. To give you an idea of what this can look like, this is one of the houses that uh, they chose to uh, transform. And by the end of the process, it looked like this. They took on another home, and this was, its, it was the condition at the time, and turned it into this. It is pretty remarkable what a couple people with a vision and many people with skills can do to transform a home. Likewise, God seeks to transform individuals. And the other side of that transformation ought to be, you know, we ought to be as distinctly different compared to our prior selves as those homes were compared to their prior condition. And the same goes for the family. We've been asking, what are the characteristics of a transformed family? Last week, we answered the question this way, or the text did, a transformed family lives sacrificially. And we define that, or the text, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, suggests that you live sacrificially by first recognizing that our bodies are not our own. God is in charge. He owns us. If we become a part of the family of God, if we've been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, we are not our own. We belong to Him. Secondly, a transformed family resists being conformed to the world. And it's not only, certainly exclusively in the sense of the surface things that we tend to really focus on. And so if we check off certain boxes, then we haven't conformed to the world. It's more than that. It's resisting that conforming to the world by renewing our minds through God's word. It's, it's more about what's going on in here and in our hearts than really necessarily anything else. And then thirdly, a transformed family lives sacrificially by revealing the goodness of God's will. As they submit to Jesus' lordship in their lives, God's word says that he works all things together for our good. And as that occurs in our life, through our obedience to his leadership, we reveal to others that his will is indeed good. In today's text, I suggest to you that a transformed family serves exceptionally. They serve exceptionally. What does that mean? Or, or how do they go about doing it? The text will answer that question for us. Let's look again at verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, first of all, a family serves exceptionally by acting with humility toward others. Now, we're going to spend more of our time on this point than the others because it's crucial to understanding what follows. And also because the topic of humility is not one that's often addressed and it's more often misunderstood than many others. But there's already a, an interpretive challenge in this text. There is not 
a unanimous consent or consensus on the meaning of measure of faith. Paul says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Some, some take this to mean that uh, faith is uh, a degree of faith in God and his will and his message. And so is it possible that God has granted or assigned varying degrees or levels of faith to different people? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense contextually within the rest of the teaching of the gospel. If we're talking about saving faith, and that seems to be the case here, God's word says we've all been, those of us who have been saved have been saved equally. It's not that you've been lesser saved from your sin than someone else. We've all been equally saved from our sinful condition, rescued by Christ for those who indeed follow him as Lord. And so it probably doesn't mean that. It wouldn't seem to match up with the context of the gospel message. Another interpretive suggestion is that in light of what he's about to discuss with the gifts that God gives to people, then perhaps he's talking about some people have more gifts than others. And so there's a diversity of gifts, but then there's also a diversity as it relates to how gifted. And so are some of us more gifted than others? Again, the context, the immediate passage doesn't seem to make that case. So then what are we left with? What we're left with is what I believe is the most logical understanding of this phrase. Measure, that word, harkens back to something like a yardstick. Or we probably don't use a yardstick very often, so let's go with tape measure. All right, Tape measure can be a very handy thing. For instance, if you're going to buy a piece of furniture, you probably want to measure the space before you buy the item. Correct? You don't want to find out that you purchased the wrong piece of furniture when the delivery guys show up. He's not going to be very happy with you, and it might be an embarrassing situation. So you measure the space first. Now you have a measure or a standard to which you will compare the choice you're about to make. And either the item that you're considering fits or it doesn't. If it doesn't, you're not going to buy it, correct? It's just not going to work. You're going to look for something that complies with the measure that you've taken. So it, that seems to be the sense here in the language being used. Faith being saving faith. The word assigned could also be rendered given. So if we put these things together, what Paul seems to be saying is this. That we ought to not think of ourselves more highly than we should. True. He, what does that look like? He says it's, it's to think with sober judgment. What does it look like to think with sober judgment? He says this. You need to constantly compare yourself to the measure you've been given to do that with. What's the yardstick we've been given? Salvation by faith through grace alone. That's the gospel. You are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. No one of us in this room can claim to have saved ourselves. We have been rescued from the depths and despair of our sin by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. All a work of God. We can't take credit, right? That's the yardstick. That's the measure. 
And when we compare ourselves to that measurement, that, that Christian doctrine, that Christian faith that Paul spends chapters 1 through 11 fleshing out, we have every reason to be humble. We have not saved ourselves. God has saved us. And, as, and the more we remind ourselves of that truth, the more humble we'll be. That's what it means to think soberly. And that is how we cannot think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. God has given us a yardstick to compare ourselves to. One of the uh, commentaries I enjoy using is the Moody Bible Commentary from 2014. They agree and say, Every believer is saved by faith, and if each measures himself against that yardstick or standard, conceit will vanish and the diverse parts of the local body will work together more profitably for their mutual care. See, it's so important that we understand this concept because it unleashes the family to do what it, should, what it needs to do. It unleashes the family of God to fulfill the command we've been given. Humility is the first step, and Paul has given us every reason to be humble. Humility, if embraced biblically, can lead to amazing things. Jesus speaks to the concept of humility. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Jesus was with some folks um, at a meal. kind of hearkening us back to the table that was referenced last week. In fact, if you start looking for times where Jesus was at table with people, it happened a lot. Uh, one commentator suggests it seems like one of, the, one of the things Jesus seems to be doing the most is eat with people. Accomplishes a lot of his ministry in that context, perhaps a worthy template for us to follow. And at this meal... Luke records this, starting in verse 7. Now he told a parable, a story, to those who were invited to the party, to the dinner, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So he's at this dinner party, and he's seeing people be very specific about where they want to be seated. In this culture, where you were seated at a at a dinner gathering, usually correlated to your status, to the host. If you were closer, more honorable. A little further away, know your place. Just be grateful you got in the room. Jesus observing this taking place, could you imagine God in the flesh watching these humans scurry about, caring about where they sit at a party? He's like, man, this is a teaching opportunity. Well, what does he say? Verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. What he's saying is this, show up to a party don't take that honored position. Not unless you've been instructed to, right? 
Don't assume that you mean that much to the host, in this case, the groom, because if you do, this is what you're risking. The person that seat belongs to shows up, and the groom comes over and says, can you move? This was reserved for this, this dear friend of ours, traveled in from out of town. This is their seat. Every, you get the picture, right? Everyone's watching. And, and, and some of you have been in situations like this. You're like, ooh, this is awkward. I'm so glad I'm not that guy. And so he gets up, right? And the only seats left are like in the nosebleeds, right? The lowest place of honor. And he says this, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of the cases where, referencing to the, to the book that I uh, cited last week from Tablet to the Table, the author there, Leonard Sweet, he, he suggests that a lot of Christians suffer from what he calls versitis. When we, when we memorize certain verses out of, like, but we, we only memorize that verse and we don't memorize the context of that verse. Many of us probably, that last verse rang familiar, but we need to be reminded what the context was for that statement, right? And that's what this is. And so what's Jesus' advice? I mean, who knew? God in the flesh had advice for your behavior when you go to a wedding party. I mean, really, super practical stuff. Uh, now, these days, usually it's assigned seating, right? But if it's not, uh, you might want to start in the back. And then the, the, get, the host comes, in this case, the groom, and he sees you out there in the back. He's like, oh, come up here, your, your table, your seat's up here, friend. Don't, don't be in the back. And now all of us kind of understand what's going on here, right? I mean, we've all, we've all been in this situation. And, and culturally, it was true then that kind of one of those really old customs that have made its way into present time, you go to a wedding party today, right? You've got the head table, which is where the bridal party sits. The center of the table, the, most, the position of highest honor is the bride and the groom, right? It, they're the ones being celebrated that day. And then, and then there's tables that, that fan out from there, right? The people that sit in those tables closest to the head table are usually close family and friends, right? Another higher position of honor. So let's be honest, you and I get invited to a wedding reception and we're in the back. At least we know where things stand, right? With the host. And that, you know, that can inform how much you spend on their gift, right? I'm just kidding. Be generous no matter where they seat you. But you get what Jesus is saying, right? Humble yourself. And, and, I, and I think that the, that the host, right? The host of the party in this parable, in this story, you know, could just as the same be God. Humble yourself. God's going to come along and he'll lift you up. He'll, he'll give you your reward. He'll get you to your proper place. And, and if what you and I are doing is ultimately for him, that's all that's going to matter to us anyway. How he thinks we need to be rewarded or recognized. And those of us who humble ourselves will be exalted. But those who exalt themselves demand that recognition expect that reward in return, a humbling's coming, and it will come at the hand of God. When you talk about humility, you can't do it, or at least I have never been able to, without bringing Philippians chapter 2 into the conversation. I encourage you to turn there with me, Philippians chapter 2. 
One of the of many endless list of amazing things about Jesus Christ is that he was a teacher and is a teacher that he's not the person who says one thing and does another. We all know those kinds of people. What he said, he did. He set the example for everything that he taught us to do, even when it comes to humility. This boggles my mind. God in the flesh gave us the perfect example of humility. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do, not, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, that's been given to you in Christ Jesus. By the way, when, when verses 1 and 2 says, you know, not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is what that looks like. It's, it's renewing our mind in the mind of Christ. Verse 6, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And last week, we, in one of our passages, we read that anyone who died on a cross was considered cursed. The most dishonorable way to die. And that's what he did. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His example is for us to follow. This is what it looks like to humble yourself. When you think of Jesus, of all people on the earth at the time that deserved to be served, insisted that he would be the one to serve others. He himself said he came not to be served, but to serve other people. And if he humbled himself to do that, how much more should we? That's the yardstick. That's the measure we compare ourselves to. And if we do it rightly, it will lead to humility. Now, there are some misconceptions about humility. And because of that, I'm taking some extra time to talk about it. I've been reading a book uh, named Humility, the Joy of Self-Forgetfulness by Gavin Ortland, And he lays out what I think are some misconceptions about humility. In this case, he lists three. The first misconception is that humility is hiding. You know, that if we want to be humble, we need to not say anything, hide behind the scenes, stay out of the spotlight, right? It looks so humble to do that. But this is what Gavin says. 
Humility is not hiding your talents or abilities. If you can paint like Van Gogh, humility does not require you to keep your work under a veil in the basement closet. By the way, if you could paint like Van Gogh, let Pastor Brad know. He could, he could use many more of those kinds of artists for vacation Bible school. If you can pitch a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, humility will not encourage you to sit on the bench and never tell the coach. If I were that coach, I'd kick you off the team, man. You could throw 95 and you didn't say anything all season long. That's not humility. It's foolishness. Coach, give me a shot. I think I can throw and throw hard. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters, one devil advises another. The enemy, to them this is God, the enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having actually done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him, in the end, to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. What he's saying is this, where we want this human being is to be so incredibly gifted by God, but convinced he should never put those on display and just let the guy who will do second best do the work and be okay with it. That's where we want him. Never using his gifts. Gavin goes on to say, if Lewis is right, then denying your talents is not humility. If anything, it is the opposite, since you're still focused on yourself. Biased for or against yourself as an exception to the rest of the human race. Humility means the death of this craving, self-referential framework. It means the freedom of valuing your contribution to the world alongside every other good thing in the world. If you think you can do the best at that job, then go for it. And if someone else does better, then cheer them on. Imagine it like this. You're a part of a team of doctors working to cure a disease. You make a discovery that contributes approximately 25% toward finding the cure. Another doctor then makes a different discovery that contributes the remaining 75% toward finding the cure. Humility means you are pleased with your accomplishment and able to speak freely about it. I mean, you, you, you contributed 25%. Thank you. but you simultaneously and effortlessly three times more pleased with your colleague's effort. To be such a person is not a burden, but joy and freedom. Misconception number two, humility is self-hatred. Humility is not self-hatred, self-neglect, or self-punishment. The Bible never says, hate yourself, love your neighbor. Think about it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself and you hate yourself, then chances are you're not loving anyone else very well. You see? Self-hatred is actually no less sinful than hatred of others, just as suicide is a form of murder. Musician Andrew Peterson has a song entitled, Be Kind to Yourself. It's quite a lovely song, and I agree. 
It's one of my favorites of Andrew Peterson's. If you've never heard of it, you should go search it up, particularly the YouTube video of this song. He, he does it with his kids. It's a song he wrote to his kids. It's a song that I want to share with my children when I think they're old enough to appreciate the message. Gavin says, but this idea of self-kindness strikes some of us as strange, and to be sure, it can be misunderstood. It must be distinguished from self-indulgence, for instance. But there is a way to take care of yourself, to genuinely have regard for yourself that is healthy and good, and ultimately makes you more useful to others. As I often say in counseling situations, self-care is not selfish. Many in our society struggle with a sense of shame, inferiority, and low low self-worth. We must sharply distinguish such feelings from the goal of humility. Whatever else humility will require of you, it will never rob you of your dignity as an image bearer of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are two things true of you. If you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, two things are true. One, you bear the image of God. That's been true since the moment you came into existence. But number two, as part of the family of God, you are a masterpiece he's made through Jesus Christ to do good works that he's planned for you to do. Biblical humility will never rob you of those two things. It'll be something else. Humble people don't need constant attention, but they also don't necessarily mind being noticed. Humble people don't need flattery, but they can sincerely receive a compliment. In fact, there's something very gracious receiving a compliment from somebody. Some people are not constantly minimizing themselves. They can walk into a room with a bounce in their step, open to what their presence might contribute to others, but not needing it to. Does it make sense? Again, to be such a person is not a burden, but joy and freedom. And then thirdly, humility, misconception is that humility is weakness. Humility is not weakness. We often think of it this way, as though humble people are the type you can push around if you want. They think so lowly of themselves that they don't stand up against opposition. But the truth is once again close to the opposite. Humility actually breeds strength and resilience because it frees us from the restricting needs of the ego. The need to be in charge, the need to look good, the need to defend ourselves, and so on. Humble people are often marked by a healthy ability to speak their minds on a given subject. They are not distracted by the burdens of constant self-regard and self-assessment. Humility also breeds strength because it is motivating. There is nothing like freedom from self-awareness and self-protectiveness that so wonderfully concentrates you on the matter right in front of you. As a result, humble people tend to be productive and industrious, often without even thinking about it. So again, humility is not a burden, but a joy. It feels like discovering how something is supposed to work, that something being yourself. He goes on to say, so we can think of humility like this, self-forgetfulness leading to joy. And I agree. When I was early on in my ministry journey, My, my wife and I spent a year in Sumter, South Carolina. Um, you know, first real chance to do uh, ministry work as a vocation, apart from internships. And I was hired by this school to be the ninth grade Bible teacher, ninth grade health teacher, eighth grade science teacher, seventh and eighth grade boys PE teacher, and high school athletic director. 
Yeah, I know. As challenging as that kind of responsibility set was, it was the most humbling year of my ministry journey so far. And it was needed. It was needed. And probably the peak, in terms of me being humbled, the peak of that year, found myself in the gym overseeing uh, some you know, students who were hanging out in the gym after school waiting for their rides to come, which is a thankless job. Nobody wants to be at school still, including the staff. And there were some boys making some foolish choices, and I responded to that inappropriately. I raised my voice, shouted at them. You know, shouting at people is always a sign of weakness. My voice echoing throughout the whole gymnasium. Dozens of witnesses, one of which was the daughter of the senior pastor. So about 10 minutes later, I get a text message from the senior pastor asking to see me before I leave campus, and I knew exactly what he wanted to talk about. As soon as I walked into his office, I was on the defensive. I don't think I really heard anything that came out of his mouth until I, it appeared to me that he was done saying what he was saying, and then I started to make my case. And then he did this, which is never a good sign. That's kind of universal, you need to close your mouth. So I did. And he said, Aaron, sometimes you need to hear constructive criticism or feedback and say nothing. If it's valuable, God will show you that. If it's not, if it wasn't right, if it wasn't accurate, God will show you that. You need to fight this urge to constantly defend yourself and just hear the other person. And to this day, that is a battle for me. A battle that I like to think I haven't had any new lows since then, because that was a low. But it was a great example of a man who I believe was speaking to me in humility. Truthfully, lovingly, brother to brother. Some of the hardest words I've ever had to hear, and I was wounded very deeply. And when I say I, I mean my ego was wounded very deeply. And it hurts so bad when that happens. But it was what I most needed to hear. That conversation, by the grace of God, as it settled into my heart and mind and led to confession and repentance, freed me to serve more effectively. You understand? It got me out of my own way. And so as you think about this concept of humility, there are some misconceptions, and I hope we've been able to dissuade you from buying into any of them. But think about what God might be teaching you on this subject and see its value and endeavor to put it into practice. Let's move forward. Verses 4 to 5 in Romans chapter 12 says, For as in one body we have many members, 
and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. A family serves exceptionally by first acting with humility toward others, but second by acknowledging and appreciating the diversity of the body. And both those concepts are really there in the text. Paul's intention anyway, it, it's, it, we, we can't simply check this off the list and we should never approach applying a sermon that way anyway, but we can't check this off the list by simply saying, well, I know that there's a bunch of different people in the church, but do you appreciate the diversity of the body? And can I just, I want to say very clearly, diversity is a good thing. I'm going to say it again. Diversity is a good thing. Listen, just on a personal note here, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to draw a line in the sand. I mean, it's long past time to have done that and refuse to continue letting the world rob us of our vocabulary. Every time they hijack a term and use it for worldly purposes, we abandon it because we don't want to be affiliated with their adulterated version of the word. So we never talk about justice, which is a shame, because it's a very important concept to God. You know what else we don't talk about? Diversity. Don't give in. Reclaim the language. It's biblical. And it's an opportunity for us to invite others into God's view of these things. Biblical diversity is a wonderful thing. So have you gone from acknowledging it to appreciating it in the church? Think of it this way. There ought to be no lone wolves in the church. It should be non-existent because we need each other. Uh, there, there's no such thing as a freelance Christian. We're dependent upon one another. It doesn't matter what your talents are or how long you've used them. If it's not in cooperation with others and in service to others, you're missing the point. You've been, you've been using your gifts for 50 years. Great. But if you're not using them in cooperation with others and in service to others, you're missing the point. It's not about you and your time of service. It, what, what, what's done ought to be done for the Lord and Him alone to the edification of His body. I hear sometimes things like, well, I've, I, you know, I've done it. I did that for 20 years. I'm kind of done now. Done what? Done using the gifts God gave you to serve Him? Because that should never happen. So if what you're saying is you're changing the context in which those gifts are used, great. People do that all the time. But to stop using them as though we retire from service to God is an unbiblical concept. We ought to use our gifts, embrace the diversity of the body, serve collaboratively and dependently on one another to the glory of God and the strengthening of his body. Third, verses 6 to 8 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And that's such an important word. Let us use them. No one, no one who's part of the family of God should be allowing their gifts to be sitting on the shelf unused. 
Listen, everybody, the church is not a consumer experience. I think it was Francis Chan who once said that after a church service one time, somebody said, you know, I really didn't care for worship day. He said, well, that's great because it wasn't for you. It's not. <laughs> it's for God. It's for God. So if you're sitting in this room, God has given you gifts. If you're part of his, his family, he's given you gifts to be used. Not just in isolation and not even just in our homes as families, but in this family. And how are you contributing to that effort? Let us use them. He says, if prophecy is the gift, use it in proportion to our faith. In other words, prophets better say what God has actually said. I'll get to that in a minute. If service in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes or gives in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. A family serves exceptionally by applying their gifts generously. Generously. Just apply and apply and apply and apply. Right? Don't settle for just using your gifts in, in one little box. Figure out where you can use it in all these different places. Spend them generously. Two good texts for this that I would commend to your further study that we don't have time to visit this morning that discuss the diversity of the body and the, the gifts and how they ought to be used and how beautiful this, this concept is are 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. They're in your outlines and I'd encourage you to uh, visit those later on. But let's talk about these spiritual gifts here for just a minute. When he talks about prophecy, at the time that this letter was written, that still meant two things, foretelling, F-O-R-E, and forthtelling, F-O-R-T-H. Foretelling was somebody telling you what's coming in the future. The prophets of God did this frequently. And it even occurred in the New Testament era as the New Testament was being written and given by God to us. And there were the, God's people were to test the prophets in this case. And if you recall, the primary test that the people should apply to a prophet who's foretelling is to make sure that what they say happens actually happens. And if it doesn't, you are supposed to drive them out under threat of killing them. And if they refuse to leave, you kill them. You can't be wrong one time or you're done. That, that was purposeful because nobody should be representing God. No one had a right to misrepresent God by saying, I have a message from the Lord and say it with no accountability. So these guys were held accountable. You know what that did? That really lessened the occurrences of people falsely proclaiming to be a prophet. Virtually no one wanted to be a prophet, including many of the prophets. If you read the, the writings of the prophets, some of them were quite depressed to be in the role. Jeremiah would be one of them. The, the dude couldn't stop crying. I mean, God would literally recruit these guys and say, I have a message for you. And they're like, oh my goodness, here it goes. My life is over. And God gives them the message and says, by the way, you're going to preach them this message. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to hate you for telling them the message and they're going to try to kill you. Now get to work. Nobody wanted the job. You see what's happened today 
with no accountability? The false prophets are everywhere. They're everywhere. The position of this church is that this category of prophecy is no longer occurring. We believe in, what, in something that we call the cessation of gifts in this area. That when God completed his word, and the, and, and the writers of the New Testament told us that that's exactly what he did. And we were instructed not to add to it or take away from it. We now have God's message. This is what we speak from. So we take a position here at this church that prophecy in the foretelling sense is not something that really ought to be done today. Because we have the information we need. So when we think of prophecy today, it's in the second category, forthtelling. What I've been doing with you here for the last 20 or 30 minutes or so has been forthtelling. I've been expounding upon what God's already revealed in his word. And you know what? You ought to hold me accountable. And if I ever say anything contrary to what this book says, you ought to hold me accountable to that. You might be encouraged to know in our monthly elder meetings, when we sit around that table, we're all on one level. We might have different titles on staff. Don't, don't get too carried away with that. We're all on the same level in that room. And there's a time in our meetings that we call feedback. It's open season, man. And if one of us said something on Sunday and the elders were a little iffy about it, it comes up then, if not earlier. And usually the funny thing is, when it comes up in an elder meeting, we're like, yes, 10 other people in the church have already talked to us about this. We understand the error. We're going to communicate it in up this upcoming Sunday. And that's a testimony to you guys. All of you ought to hold us accountable. For service, this is meeting the practical needs of others for the right reasons. You don't have an expectation for reciprocation. Listen, everybody, there's too much of that. You are, you are to meet the needs. If God has give, gifted you with this particular passion or desire to just meet the tangible, practical needs of others, then go do it. But don't, don't do it hoping for something in return, because then you're not doing it sincerely. Go back to what Jesus said. Humble yourself, and God will exalt you. In teaching, this is interpreting and applying Scripture, and it's a little bit more than that. It's a person who seems to have the gift of, of an interpreting and applying Scripture in a way that's very understandable to the people who are listening. In other words, if you've ever been in a position where you're like, my goodness, I've been wondering what this passage means for the better part of my adult life. I just heard whoever's preaching or teaching in the room with you at the moment. You go up to them afterwards and say, I just, it's, now it's all so clear. Thank you. That person might have a skill set for doing that, a giftedness for doing that. Exhortation. The word literally means to call to one side, to comfort and encourage. Some of, you, some of you are that kind of person. You, you, you hear that somebody needs a little encouragement, or you see somebody who just needs a little, you know, a little nudge in the right direction to, to live out the life God wants them to live. You're the kind of person who say, hey, I want to talk to you for a second. I want to lift you up. I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to cheer you on here in your journey. Giving or contributing. This actually has a financial connotation, but it's not really so much about uh, you know, the, the idea that, that, that members of God's church are to generally contribute financially to the needs of the church. This is more specific, meeting other people in the church, meeting their needs financially. In other words, some of you just uh, used this when you met the needs of uh, Kara and Oren Witt. 
You, you felt motivated to financially contribute to that need, right? And some of you are like that. By the way, God gives you these resources, right? These gifts. In this case, the gift is financial resources. Go back to that phrase, use them. And this is how. By meeting the needs of other people in the family of God. And so you, you're to contribute with sincerity, which means you don't have any ulterior motives. Don't worry, don't worry about paying us back. Nothing like, we just want to give this gift to you to help you out. Leading. This is about oversight and direction. A person who has a skill set to administer and, and bring people together and collaborate and brainstorm and cast a vision and recruit people into that vision. Seem to have a skill set for that. And lastly, mercy is sympathy or kindness to those who are hurting. And on this one in particular, if you notice, he gives the added concept that you, you do these acts of mercy with what? Do you see it? Cheerfulness. Those of you who have been in that kind of like mercy ministry know that when people are hurting, that's a long game ministry. And if we're not careful when we're ministering to this person, it's like, okay, listen, you should have stopped hurting six months ago. It's time to move on, right? Be careful of that. Give your mercy cheerfully. God will take care of the timetable. That's not your job. Just minister to the hurting person. And these gifts are not to be neglected. I can't stress that enough. In the applications, as with last week and the two weeks to come, I'm trying to be like super practical, okay? To try to get families generating conversations about the subjects that we're discussing on Sunday mornings. Got more of those in here with you. One of the ones I would encourage any of you Adult, child, family, who, whatever your situation is, use your gifts. One of the best ways, parents and grandparents, we can get our children and grandchildren to own their faith is by helping them employ their giftedness in the church to contribute. Otherwise, we're raising a consumer. And when we raise children as church consumers, they'll leave. They'll leave as soon as the product no longer meets their consumer desire. But if you raise them as contributors, serve in the nursery, play with little babies, help little kids do crafts at Vacation Bible School. I'll talk about my daughter Ellie for a second. I don't do this very often, but... Um, she, we were driving in the car recently, and she says from the back, she says, we were talking about Vacation Bible School coming up, and she said, I don't know if I really want to go. We said, why is that? She said, I'd rather help. I said, well, I'll talk to Pastor Brad about that. She's like, really? I said, yeah. So I go to Pastor Brad, say, hey, Ellie wasn't really super excited about VBS. We asked her why. She said she'd rather serve than just attend. I said, can she do that? I mean, she's only nine. Pastor Rad's like, absolutely. Any of the first, he's like, I think what we'll do is I'll, 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 I'll have her helping the people in the craft station. I'm like, my goodness, this is a God thing because that's one of Ellie's passionate areas is crafts. So when I went home, you should have seen the look on her face. When I said, Pastor Brad said you could help and you can help in the craft station, she was said, when's it starting? I'm so proud of Ellie. 
excited to see that already just wanting to serve. Parents, foster that. Foster that. I'll give you uh, another example of what we're talking about this morning. And what we're talking about ultimately is teamwork. Team DBC on the greater team of Jesus. I like, uh, I like team sports more than individual sports. Even when my wife and I like watch the Olympics, you know, it's not the, like the individual skating competitions that are super impressive to me. It's when they have to skate together, like the couples routines. That's much more fascinating to me because they have to really depend on one another in order to succeed. I love team-based contexts like that. And while my favorite team sport is baseball, the example I'm going to give you this morning of teamwork, of of how beautiful this thing could look if we can do it, uh, actually comes from a football game. This is a clip from a football game from Trinity University, and it's been henceforth called the Miracle Lateral Play. Some of you have probably seen this. I'm not a football guy, but a lateral pass, correct me if I'm wrong, football fellas, is you have to toss it to a guy on your team who's either directly across from you or behind you. You can't just keep tossing the ball forward. You probably hate the fact that I'm using the word toss. We don't toss footballs. We throw them. All right? uh, but you get what I mean, a lateral throw. Uh, so this is a game. I want to give you the context. They were down by two points with two seconds left. Final play of the game. All right. Now listen, in an, in an era of like fake news, this has been hyper-scrutinized, and it, w- it actually happened. I believe they set the record for lateral tosses in a single play, and they won the game. Now, what I would encourage you to do is YouTube that sometime and watch it again or a third time. What you'll notice is what I started noticing. The first thing you do is focus on all those lateral throws, right? But then you start paying attention to everything else all the other people on the field are doing in order to make that happen. All the blocks, all the getting into open spaces to receive the lateral throw. I mean, by the way, athletes, this is why your coach has conditioning practices at the beginning of the season, because those boys were running. No one was standing and watching. But listen, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. When God's people get out of their own way and they compare themselves to the measure of faith they've been given, salvation through Christ, by grace, through faith alone, humble themselves and are rightly positioned to God and to others, we are unleashed to use our gifts the way God intended. That's just as true for this family as it is for all your individual families. It can be just as beautiful in your homes as it could be here. But it starts with humility. So what are the characteristics of a transformed family? Today, it's a family that serves exceptionally by acting with humility toward others, acknowledging and appreciating the diversity of the body, and applying their gifts generously. I want to close our time in the Word this morning before we take communion together by offering our thanks and extending honor to God, reading from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.